3: Hey, this is Annie. And this is Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told, you, your production of iHeartRadios How Stuff Works. We have another Saturday classic episode today. And as we've mentioned in a previous classic episode, um, we're talking about Abortion a lot lately in this country and Mm -hmm. on this very show. So we're replaying some of the episodes that past hosts have done around this topic. And for this one, this episode delves into Plan B. Mm. Yes, which has come under fire or is involved in some of these really restrictive abortion laws that we're seeing. Right. And the access of Plan B has been less
2: and less uh, per state.
3: Yeah, um, I know Samantha B did that joke of her, like, walking out the day after Donald mm-hmm. Trump was elected with all of the plan right. B. Oh,
2: and it, I think it skyrocketed in um, Amazon. Oh, really? As one of the first things that people looked up and stocked up on, and you could get, like, multi-packs.
3: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really expensive. I, I'm both not surprised and just hadn't really
2: thought about buying plan B on Amazon. but Yeah, when I found that out, I think it was actually Caroline from mm. Unladylike, former... Uh, host of Stuff Mom Never Told You, yes. she was the one like, yeah, I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe I should do the same. Yeah,
3: yeah. Maybe I should do this <laughs> so thing. What a, what a positive state of affairs we well, are I in right now. Well, I think the
2: other conversation was, when does it expire? What's the oh, expiration yeah. date? Yes. That was another conversation.
3: Yes. And another conversation that comes up sometimes around this and what this episode is about um, is the argument that Plan B Access is bad for girls. Right. Right. So, to to learn more about that argument, we present to you this classic episode, and we hope that you enjoy it.
2: Welcome
0: to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm Caroline. And Caroline, a couple of years ago on the podcast, we did an episode on the morning after pill and what it is. Uh, And we're going to revisit the morning after pill and specifically the branded Plan B emergency contraception because it has made some headlines of late. And we want to talk about the legal debate surrounding access to Plan B, specifically access for younger girls. Mm -hmm. Um, And also what emergency contraception is.
1: Yeah, because previously, um, morning after pills, the more appropriate name being emergency contraception, because you don't have to necessarily take them the morning after. The whole rigmarole was that they were only available to girls 17 and up with an ID and a prescription. So the evolution becomes that the FDA basically says it's okay for everybody. They study the safety and efficacy. They say it's okay. The administration kind of freaks out. The Obama administration kind of freaks out. That's... It's not okay for everybody. It's, oh, my God, we have so many things to worry about. We can't just be handing out drugs like candy. The FDA, in response, kind of tucks their tail, and then we get a whole bunch of lawsuits. That's, that's kind of glossing over how everything's evolved. Now what we're dealing with is this push to get rid of age restrictions versus the push to maintain the older age limit with ID. And what's interesting... About this fight that we'll get into is that both sides, for instance, groups like the Family Research Council and groups like Planned Parenthood are both saying that this is an argument of politics versus science. And they're both both sides are accusing each other of putting politics before what is best for our children. Yeah, and that's
0: the Family Research Council, obviously representing more of the conservative side of things, whereas Planned Parenthood is arguing more on the the, the liberal side of stuff, not just to, to boil it down to black and white, but the drug in question that we're talking about is called Leave on a Gestural, and we hear about it under the brand name Plan B. And just for a little bit of Historical context, emergency contraception is nothing new to medicine. It's not like doctors recently figured out oh, you know what, we can actually uh, d- give women a drug that could halt the egg from being fertilized after they have unprotected sex or in the case of sexual assault. And this brief timeline is coming from the paper, Emergency Contraception, an underutilized resource out of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. And it talks about how hormonal emergency contraception was first studied in the 1920s when researchers figured out that estrogenic ovarian extracts mm, (laughs) interfered with pregnancy in animals. And so it started out as the high-dose estrogen-only formula, and vets were the first ones to use it on dogs and horses who had mated when the owner didn't intend to. So not with
1: each other, right? I had to read that twice. I'm not. I'm not joking. It was yeah. like dogs and horse. Oh, okay.
0: So <laughs> dogs, and, dogs, and horses were the first, the first uh, animals to receive this kind of emergency contraception. And let's not forget, though, about how women took emergency contraception into their own hands even before the FDA had a drug approved with douching, as we talked about in one of our favorite Stuff Mom Never Told You episodes, Down with the Douche. Apparently, not only did that, we talked about in the podcast about how women would douche with Lysol and a Lysol competitor, Zonite, and apparently also with Coca-Cola. It is abrasive. Yes.
1: Uh, We are
0: in no way endorsing any of that. Don't do that. We're just
1: saying that it happened. Yeah. Keep Coke on ice, (laughs) not (laughs) in your vagina. And that's a quote. We can rap. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So moving on through the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research done on different combinations of drugs to prevent... Uh, pregnancy. And in the mid-60s, we have the first documented human clinical cases of post estrogens. And this is when doctors in the Netherlands used that veterinarian-proved method on a 13-year-old girl who had been raped in order to prevent pregnancy. But by the late 1960s in the U.S., high-dose estrogen regimens became the standard. And then going into the 70s, we have the development of... Uh, regimens that are a combination of estrogen and progestin. And in
0: 1974, some of our older listeners might be familiar with the USPAY method. This was named for Canadian Dr. Albert USPAY, which was an estrogen-progestin combination, and it replaced for a while the high-dose estrogen treatments because it had fewer side effects. And now Plan B is a progestin-only formula, and it has greater efficacy in terms of blocking that pregnancy, as well as fewer side effects. And in 1999, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved... Plan B with a prescription, and since 2009, the FDA has approved it for over-the-counter sales for women 17 years old and over. And in 2011, this is when the legalities start to get really dicey, in 2011, Health and Human Services Director Kathleen Sebelius blocks Plan B slash One Step from being available to all women of all ages over the counter. And this happened in response to an application from drug maker Tiva, who, who makes Plan B, um, when the FDA went back and looked at it and recommended that it be made available to all women, saying that it's very safe. And so Sibelia says, you know what, I'm going to overrule that. And in response, reproductive rights groups such as Planned Parenthood sued the Health and Human Services Department, for that. And so in the middle of all of this, we have Judge Edward Corman of the District Court of Eastern New York, who was the one who, in... April 5th, 2013, this year overturned the US Health and Services ruling to put an age limit on obtaining plan B. So it's just been it's it's almost like watching a ping pong match between the courts and the FDA and then also you have Health and Human Services stepping in. And so people are are kind of On the one hand, flipping out saying, you know what, we need to put some kind of age restriction on it. But the interesting thing is Judge Edward Corman, who has been presiding over this whole plan B legality since 2005 in terms of overseeing uh, whether or not it should be made available to everyone. He is basically at the end of his rope with all of this. Uh, th- there was an NPR story about this, and it cites from the legal brief that he wrote, the effort to convert these levonorgestrel based contraceptives from prescription to over-the-counter status has gone on for over 12 years, even though they would be among the safest drugs available to children and adults on any drugstore shelf. And, and then he
1: signed it with a giant snap. No, really. I mean, I read the entire brief, uh, his recent brief, and it was not only fascinating and enlightening, uh, kind of uh, get a better understanding of of what's going on politically and in the courts about this whole issue right now, but it was just the most entertaining thing I may have ever read outside of a David Sedaris book. Because, I mean, this is like the most intelligent snark in the world. Uh, Judge Corman basically calls Sibelius' decision to overrule the strike of the age limit as politically motivated, scientifically unjustified, and contrary to agency precedent. He goes on to say that, look, it's really only the FDA that has the necessary information and expertise to make these decisions about the safety and efficacy of drugs, a principle, he says, that Sibelius flagrantly violated. And so in response... To the defendants who are, you know, Sibelius and the commissioner of food and drugs seeking a stay of the, st- age, the strike of the age uh, rules to pursue an appeal. He says it's something out of an alternate reality and says that one of their arguments that if you let it go over the counter now and then reverse it later without a stay... It's largely an insult to the intelligence of women because he's like, dudes, you're the ones who have made this process for obtaining Plan B so freaking confusing.
0: And some have brought up the fact that it's telling that Corman is having. Such an intense response against the Obama administration's uh, wish for that 15 year old age limit on it because Corman was appointed by President Reagan. So he was part of, you know, a a more politically conservative administration's uh, appointments. And so they're saying, well, you know, if he if, if he's freaking out over this, maybe also for me thinking about being on the same case since 2005, maybe he just needs a vacation. Could be. Perhaps he's just
1: tired of. But hey, if, about it. if frustration leads to some of the beautiful things that he wrote, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I, I highly recommend you search out this brief and read it.
2: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
0: Now, of course, in April, when Judge Corman said, you know what, enough of all this, you need to make Plan B available over-the-counter to all women of all ages. Also, side note, men, you can buy Plan B as well. Um, But, of course, when he said, you know, the the age limit should be removed— Q freak out because not only do you have, well, you have that, and then the Obama administration coming back and saying, nope, we're going to have a 15 year old cap for that, and you're going to need an ID. So Planned Parenthood said in response, basically, like, uh, thanks, but you know what? You need to lift all restrictions to this. And then on the more conservative side, you have Concerned Women for America saying, well, if Plan B is so safe, then why do we need prescriptions for birth control, huh?
1: Yeah, they, they get a little snarky also. This is like a big theme among this, this debate is some snark. The Concerned Women for America wrote that the same, quote, women's rights advocates who want every decision to be between, quote, a woman and her doctor are now eliminating the doctor and putting politics ahead of our kids. So see, there's that debate of like everybody's accusing everybody else of being too political in this discussion.
0: Right. And then the more liberal National Women's Law Center said, hey, you know, with this whole ID issue women who don't have IDs are going to be denied access that could create problems how many 15 year olds do we know who already have IDs and even if you you know if, if if one of us for instance Caroline, older women who are plenty above the age limit to get plan B if we go to the drugstore and all of a sudden oh you know what actually we forgot our ID then we can't get it the whole timing issue with the access to emergency contraception is important even if it means oh well you Got to leave, and then you might have to come back the next day. Well, in the time that has passed, that lowers the efficacy rates of emergency contraception. So, this timing issue is very important. Um, And then we have people from the Family Research Council saying, well, you know what? What about what this hormone is going to do to the prepubescent female body? Because really, a lot of this ties into fear of. Whether or not access to emergency contraception over the counter without an ID to girls of all ages is somehow going to set off this domino effect in younger girls' brains that, oh, you know what? I can start having sex whenever because if something happens, then I can just go to Walgreens the next
1: day and take care of it. So the Family Research Council points out that Plan B distances the girls who are at high risk of sexual abuse and STIs from the medical supervision they need. And I think that's an important uh, question of access because are these girls who the Family Research Council is so concerned about, are they even getting medical intervention, do they even have access to it? Mm-hmm. Are they able to go to the doctor and ask questions and get a prescription for this stuff? Um, I mean, what group of people are we talking about? Not everybody, not every uh, young girl's parents are involved in her life and can drive her to a pharmacy, you know?
0: Well, and when I was I was listening to Dan Savage talking about this not too long ago, and he brought up a pretty distressing but relevant point of let's say, okay, a, a girl is raped by her father and then she has to turn around and ask him to drive her to the drugstore to go get plan B. You know what I mean? Like it's it's pretty telling too that in November of 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that advanced emergency contraception prescriptions be allowed f- because kids are more likely to use it when that's the case, like it, basically if, if it's already there, if they have it, then if something happens, then they're more likely to use it. Which is one reason why New York Times parenting blogger KJ Del Antonia suggested that maybe, you know what, as parents, maybe we need to go ahead and just stock up on plan B at home.
1: Yeah, and she advised that it be kind of a, as hard as it would to maintain this. It'd be a no questions asked policy like just come come to me and come get it if you need it and we'll deal with it then just tell her you know tell your daughter that you that you have it and why you hope she'll never need it yeah and i mean one thing to
0: to point out with with these understandable concerns about opening up a gateway to Young girls, girls who, you know, it might not be a good idea for them to be sexually active at such young ages. When we're thinking about girls under 15, possibly needing emergency contraception. But the Guttmacher Institute also highlights that very few young girls are sexually active. Only 0.3% of 10-year-olds, 0.6% of 11-year-olds 1.3% of 12-year-olds and 3.4% of 13-year-olds are sexually active, but something happens between 13 and 14 where that percentage jumps from 3.4% of 13-year-olds to 8.6% of 14-year-olds. And in 2008, there were over 10,000 pregnancies among 14-year-old
1: girls in the United States. But among all that, there is no evidence that that jump has anything to do with the availability of emergency contraception.
0: Exactly. But at the same time, it says, you know what, putting this 15-year-old age restriction does leave out a population that could be in need. Now, before we get into some of the, the reasons why Plan B is really just part of a broader discussion that we need to be having if we really do want to address uh, lowering unintended pregnancy rates and specifically teen pregnancy in the United States, let's take a, a quick detour, though, to... Talk about what exactly emergency contraception is. This is something that we covered in our 2010 episode, What is the Morning After Pill? But it's worth going over uh, right now as well.
1: Right. So Plan B, like we said, contains the progestin hormone called levonorgestrel. And you should take it as soon as possible, typically less than 72 hours after unprotected sex. But it is worth noting that if you're already pregnant, it will not harm the embryo. You will experience some side effects, though, the most common of which are nausea and vomiting. You might also experience abdominal pain, breast tenderness, dizziness, fatigue, headaches, and irregular bleeding. Yes, emergency contraception
0: is not, I repeat, not... The same thing as a medicated abortion. Um, And most women are satisfied with the results of Plan B. There was a 1999 study which found that 97% of emergency contraceptive users would recommend it actually to friends and family. But it is not cheap, though. That's another thing. With this whole, Mm -hmm. you know, question about access, we're all freaking out. Well, you know what? Uh, 15-year-olds or 14-year-olds might not even be able to afford it if they were even allowed to buy it because it ranges from $50 to $60. And one thing, too, that Judge Corman is concerned about is the fact that this over-the-counter stuff is only affecting one brand and Mm -hmm. not a generic, and that is going to do absolutely nothing to possibly lower the price of emergency contraceptives and may, in fact, have the market effect of increasing the price because Teva, that drug maker, can say, oh, well, you know what? We're the only OTC brand, so you're going to have to pay what we say.
1: Which is awful. Yeah. But other methods include uh, the Paragard copper IUD, which must be inserted five days after unprotected sex and is one of the best emergency contraception methods. Uh, there are also combination birth control pills estri- with estrogen and progestin, uh, which you have to take less than five days after unprotected sex. And these methods typically prevent pregnancy by preventing or delaying ovulation, blocking fertilization, and preventing a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. Again, it's not terminating A pre-existing pregnancy, right? And in terms of the success rate, it depends on that time factor that we talked about.
0: Generally, one to two out of one hundred women who use emergency contraception will still get pregnant. Um, It may also delay their period for a week. But then, if your period doesn't come around for three to four weeks, you have abdominal pain, you have a spotting. Doctors say, you know, you need to go ahead and take a pregnancy test. But those success rates will diminish the longer that you wait to take emergency contraception, get the Paragard IUD, uh, use the
1: combination birth control
0: pills, whatever your doctor, nurse, practitioner recommends in that case.
1: Okay, so we've told you a little bit about uh, the fight that's going on over Plan B, and we've looked at other methods of emergency contraception, but we haven't talked about maybe the downside of Plan B and how it's not just a cure-all, for all that ails us. Um, It doesn't, it's not a panacea for lowering unintended pregnancy and teen pregnancy rates because, as we talked about, there are a lot of barriers to access. Not just the ID and prescription, but also the costs. And this is coming from New York Times writer Roni Karen Rabin, who wrote that a a lot of studies suggest that many women don't even know a morning-after pill exists. Or, if they do know it exists, they literally think it only works the morning after. Right, and these studies also point out that the patterns
0: of use generally don't really do much at all to diminish unintended pregnancy rates because emergency contraceptive use is highest among women with the lowest risk of pregnancy because usually the women who go and get the morning after pill and take it are the ones who are already practicing safe sex and maybe the condom broke or something happened. They forgot to take their birth control pill and had sex. And, you know, they are women who are already mindful of preventing unintended pregnancy and so they then go and get emergency contraception. So their actual risk of pregnancy is very low. The issue is about getting it into women's hands sooner and also these women filling that education gap among girls and women who you know think that it either only has that 24-hour window or don't really know that it exists.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the argument against uh, granting access to Plan B to younger girls, a lot of that fear has to do with kind of culturally ingrained fears about casual sex, teen pregnancy, single motherhood, taking parents and doctors out of the decision to take this medicine. And all of that is summed up in one quote in the New York Times from Dr. Mary Davenport, the recent president of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who said, Fear of pregnancy is a deterrent to sexual activity. When you introduce something like this, it changes people's behaviors and they have more risky sex. Teens will be counting on this morning after pill to bail them out, and they'll have more casual encounters. And I'm sorry, that's just unlikely because of everything we just talked about. Not only the lack of awareness that it even exists— But so many barriers to access. Well, and also,
0: the fact of the matter is, studies have looked into the connection between access to emergency contraception and, quote-unquote, risky sexual behavior, and the correlation does not stand. I mean, I I feel like like I get a little frustrated when people seem to assume that... Women, some women just think of uh, abortion, medicated abortion, emergency contraception, all of these things that are not pleasant processes for our bodies as just pleasant parachutes that we yeah. can just use. You know, hey, we want to just have some risky sexual behavior, but it doesn't matter. I'm just going to have ab cramps and abnormal bleeding for a little while, but it's fine. Like, Yeah, small price to pay. I don't know that that many women are thinking like that. But my personal thoughts aside, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have said point blank that making emergency contraception more readily available does not promote risky sexual behavior or increase the rate of unintended pregnancy among adolescents. Ready access of emergency contraception among adolescents is not associated with lower hormonal contraceptive use, lower condom use, or more unprotected sex. It seems like, in fact, like we said with that study finding, that... It's the women who have the lowest risk of pregnancy, who are actually the highest users of EC, emergency contraception, that that would probably extend down to teen populations as well. It's more about providing comprehensive sex ed. Because really, the the fact of the matter is, this is, I mean, it's emergency contra It's called emergency contraception for a reason. Because the focus really should be on consistent use ...of reliable forms of contraception.
1: Right. And and you talked about, um, you know, the groups of women who are getting easy access to this are maybe not the ones who need it the most. Philip Levine and Melissa Kearney, for uh, an article in The Atlantic, talked about how this issue is really bigger than just contraception. The teen pregnancy rate issue is so much bigger than just having access to contraception, like emergency contraception, for instance. Uh, they wrote that policies like access to Plan B, family planning, abstinence only education, and sex ed don't really address the fundamental economic and social issues that drive teen pregnancy. Um, they argue that we have to improve educational attainment for young girls, show them valid reasons to delay motherhood, and prove to them that they have a reason to invest in their future and not just say, well, I'm never going to get out of this small town. I'm never going to have money. I'm never going to find a man worthy of marrying. Why not have a baby now? Right. And they're saying this because, the fact of the matter is that
0: girls from disadvantaged backgrounds, from lower socioeconomic groups who live in places with a larger gap between the poor and middle class are much more likely to give birth as teens than girls who have similar backgrounds but face
1: less inequality. Yeah, so income inequality leads to lower economic mobility which results in girls who don't see a chance to better their lives so they are the ones who are more likely to have a child. So it's not just that they're like going out and having risky sex you know, for whatever. They're not necessarily being so cavalier about it, but it's like, well, you know, what, what else, you know, what else is there? Right. And I mean, with all of this, It's,
0: no one is arguing that, you know, kids should be having sex at younger ages or that we should be cavalier at all in our approach to sex or having risky sexual behavior. One thing that we have not mentioned about emergency contraception is that, hello, it does not protect against STDs and STIs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, but it's just part of this broader contraceptive education that it's not just teen girls who need it. It's. All of us and also gets at a massive fear and discomfort over teen sexuality, which as Mm -hmm. much as as adults, I'm sure, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of repression going on. You don't want to think about kids having sex, but it's like, what are we going to do? Do you either pretend that it's not there and just hope to put the fear of you might get pregnant and end up in a terrible situation and hope to God they just never have sex which is unrealistic because hormones exist, or you educate them and you grant access and you hopefully are, you know, a wise and brave parent. I say that on an up end because it it is such a huge challenge, but the answer isn't fear. And I feel like a lot of the combat against this kind of stuff of access to Plan B is very fear-motivated. Yeah. Because kids going to do what kids are going to do, you know. <laughs> and again, I think, you know, to tie all of this up, uh, it's sort of like when we talked about the topic of abortion a long time ago on the podcast. It's like that's not the ideal situation. You know, that's never right. emergency contraception is not the ideal situation. That's why it's the emergency, like we said. But, you know. I'm now I'm just repeating myself. Never well,
1: mind. I mean, people aren't popping it like candy. I mean, you know, like young girls aren't just going out and having sex, like you said, and being like, oh, it's okay. I'll just go get an abortion tomorrow, or I'll just go get emergency contraception at the at the drugstore. It's fine. You know, I think that's far less common than than something accidental has happened or something terrible has happened. And, you know, like we saw with that huge jump in sexual activity and pregnancy rates with 14-year-olds... We are by by setting what seems to me to be an arbitrary age limit of fifteen, we're shutting out a huge group of of girls who need access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, access
0: and and just education all around. Um, so we're recording this episode in May. You are listening to it right now in June. So I'll be curious to see it between now and when this podcast publishes if there will be any movement legally but i have a f- suspicion that the age limit will be lifted i think at some point that will go away but i want to hear from listeners about this access i mean is is it too is it too young you know should 15 is it fine to leave that age limit at 15 parents what do you do would you do as that ny times parenting blogger advise and say maybe we should just stock it for them hey why not? Um, let us know your thoughts on this more political than we usually go issue. Momstuff stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. We'd also love to hear from you on Facebook or you can tweet us at mom podcast. And before we get to a couple of messages y'all have sent us, let's take just a quick break and we'll be right back. Well, I've got a couple of letters here. And the first one I have is in response to an episode we did quite a while ago on asexuality. And this is from Victory, who wrote in saying, I just wanted to thank you for your excellent podcast in helping me understand my asexuality. They've seen me through many a Monday morning and taught me so much about myself and the world from a feminist perspective. When you released your podcast on asexuality, that was actually when I figured out that I was asexual, and everything that you described was what I had been experiencing. That was quite an eye-opening experience for me because I finally realized where all of the confusion involving my sexuality came from. I came out to my friends when I was 15 and have been openly asexual ever since. Thanks again for everything.
1: And thank you for writing in. Okay, I have a letter here from Ashley. She says... I'm a biologist living in Baltimore, and I have an interesting topic that I hear from men now that I'm married. I call it the wedding ring phenomenon. I first heard about it right before we moved to Baltimore. We were having a goodbye dinner with a couple of friends when the guy, let's call him John, told us about how he will wear a wedding ring while trying to pick up women. John. Ugh. I thought it was appalling and completely ludicrous, but my husband thought it made sense. The next time I heard about it, it was from my husband's old boss and more recently from his current boss. Apparently, they think that men wearing rings are considered ideal mates and that women will be attracted to them and hit on them. I don't agree with this at all. Back when I was single, when I saw a ring, I immediately thought, that property is taken and moved on. My husband thinks that is more of a male view and believes that most other women think differently. He believes that when the average female sees a male with a wedding ring, that she thinks that he must have desirable traits and then immediately wants a desirable man and acts on that desire. I was curious if you know of any research backing this wedding ring phenomenon or if the men in my life are just full of themselves. If you do find any research, she says, then I have some questions. Does it work both ways? Does it only happen between straight people? And to that I say, we do have some answers. And if you want to read them, you should go to stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com and, you know, check out some cool stuff while you're there, including answers to wedding ring phenomena.
0: Yeah, and um, while you're at it, if you want to drop us a line about what, whether or not you have ever <laughs> witnessed this wedding ring phenomenon in action, you can email us again, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. We also love to hear from you on Facebook and on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And like Caroline said, we're on Tumblr as well. You can follow us. where are at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And don't forget to watch us three times a week coming at you on YouTube at youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you. Go on over there and subscribe.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
3: This episode is brought to you by PNC
2: Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at
3: your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive